Thank you for listening to the Recovery Refuge podcast. We aim to offer you a safe listening space to grow in your recovery. I hope today's show is an encouragement to you and brings you a sense of peace in your life. For updates on new content, follow us on social media at recoveryrefuge.care. Also, check out our website for any developments in our ministry at recoveryrefuge.care. Enjoy today's show. All right. Uh, so this is Hunter Abrams. I'm here with our founder, Adam French. He founded Recovery Refuge. We're also here with Mitch. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how old you are. Yeah, so uh, my name's Mitch. Um, I am, I will be 51 in uh, just a few weeks. So actually my birthday is in August. Happy so, birthday. Uh, I'm, yeah. the, I'm in the second half of, of the game. So I'm in the second <laughs> half of my life, we'll put well, it that way. <laughs> so just to dive in here, looking back at your life, uh, what portion of your life would you say you've struggled with addiction? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a great question. Um, the portion of my life that I've struggled with addiction, quite honestly, has been from the time I was probably 18 until today. Uh, although I've been sober for uh, a while now, uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I kind of ran into some struggles during COVID and fell back into some bad coping mechanisms, but uh, been sober for quite a while now. But uh, I was introduced to alcohol probably at about 17 or 18 years old. Um, after that, uh, through nine knee surgeries, uh, I'm a former athlete, so I've had a lot of uh, knee problems. I was introduced to pain pills, and uh, when you start to mix pain pills with alcohol, uh, I think we all know that that is a very, very dangerous combination. It is. And it led me down a, a very dark path for the better part of uh, probably, probably 25 years of my life. Now, Mitch, who introduced you to alcohol? I'm curious because a lot of people, first time they ever use it, maybe they found something with their parents, or what was that like for you? What was your. You know, that, that, that's a great question. Uh, my dad, uh, I've never seen my dad take a drink. Uh, okay. My dad and my family, um, he was a drinker. Uh, he was a very wild <laughs> man uh, involved in the bars and the fighting scene. There was just a lot of, lot of stories about how, you know, quote unquote, my, my dad was this tough guy that was like, He'd fight anybody at the drop uh, yeah. of a hat. So uh, he had a <clears throat> he had a pass with alcohol, but I I, I personally never saw my uh, dad lay eyes, or I, was, I never saw my dad take a drink. Um, but I was exposed to. He had some moonshine in a little building down behind his house, uh, and probably the first time I drank alcohol it was me and a, a neighbor kid from across the street. We was about ten years old, and we got into some moonshine. Goodness, well, people can't see this, but you and your son have a full grown beard, and I'm wondering <laughs> if that moonshine was the start of the growth of the hair on your chest. <laughs> well, I wish yeah. it could help me grow it on top of my head. And that'd be a different story, but I wasn't gonna say that. But, <laughs> oh man. So let's ask this, just there's a lot of things that happens in recovery, but what was that darkest moment? Like what was that darkest moment when, when you felt like you're alone or yeah. life had fallen apart? What was that toughest moment while you were in that active addiction kind of time? Yeah. Again, a great question. Um, I'm not sure since you're sitting here looking at me if you see the the color coming up in in my face because this um, to this day it's still a it's a very emotional question for me to answer. Um, not everybody knows, but the the guy sitting next to us at your podcast uh, co-host, if you will, is my son. Um, so probably the the depths and the worst memory that I have of my alcohol addiction. 
Uh, we were over at a friend of mine who's actually my boss. He was the CEO of our company. We lived in a fairly nice neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. I forget what holiday it was. It was one of those holidays where uh, we was off at Labor Day, Memorial Day, kind of one of those days where he had an extended weekend. Yeah. I was over at his house and uh, we'd been drinking. He had a pool and he had a putting green in his yard and we were just hanging out, you know, doing the summer thing and uh, got ready to leave. And we were coming home and um, loaded the kids up and I had a beer with me and I'd been drinking quite a bit and got ready to come home. And Hunter, while I was driving home, said, Dad, I don't think you're supposed to drink and drive. And I'm like, shut up, kid. It's in, I'm in the neighborhood. It's in the neighborhood. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the count. neighborhood. I'm driving yeah. like one mile. So I got a beard. I'm driving through my neighborhood. And I've got my oldest son that's noticing that, like, I don't think you're supposed to drink and drive, Dad. And for me, that was kind of that first, uh, you know, recognizing even my, my kid knows yeah. this ain't right. So we got home. Uh, I was uh, I was drunk. Might as well be blunt about it. I'd had way too much to drink. And this was... Um, it's like a Monday or a Tuesday. I forget what it was, but our trash day was Thursday. So we got home, we got out of the car and that had already kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I got my, you know, my 12 year old calling me out for right. drinking and driving. And so I got out of the car and I was like, take the trash out. And, uh, what any 12 or 13 year old would do, I would assume in that situation is he was like, dad, it's not trash day. And I said, shut up and do what I told you to do. Take the trash out. And I could just see the life leave his face. Um, his shoulders drooped, his head went down. About that time, Jill walked out. Uh, Jill kind of come around the corner and was like, you know, we, we were on this holiday weekend. Everything was good. Everything was happy. We had just been to this picnic. And I heard Jill say, Hunter, what's wrong? Because he went from this fun time to just having the life sucked out of him. And um, I'll never forget the words when he said, uh, Dad's drunk again. And uh, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And that was the first time that I really realized, man, I got a problem. Uh, Dad, when my 12-year-old said, Dad's drunk again, he didn't say Dad's drunk. He said, Dad's drunk again. And that was really kind of the first time I opened my eyes to, I got a problem. And it's bad enough that my 12-year-old knows it. Yeah. So being the other character in that story, um, I feel like I might know the answer to this one. But at that point, if someone would have asked you, who is God? How does he behave? What's he like? What would you have said to that? Yeah, it's a, again, these are great questions because uh, I grew up in church. Uh, I grew up in a church that, in my opinion, uh, they did what they did it the best they knew how, uh, but they taught me a whole lot of things, quite honestly, that now 30, 40 years later, I realized that they meant well, but it just wasn't biblically based. Uh, their theology was horrible. I was really taught that the only way to God was through works. I was probably in my 40s, quite honestly, before I ever even heard the concept of grace. Didn't understand it. Wow. Uh, I was 40 years old before I even heard the grace of God. And uh, that took me down a journey of trying to figure out what this God of grace was all about. But back at that time, I described myself as an agnostic. I mean, I was raised in church and I uh, got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm doing good. I'm a high functioning alcoholic. I knew I was an alcoholic, but I was a very high you functioning alcoholic. Yeah. That Never missed stuff. work, was well work on time, yeah. ran a multi-million dollar division, yeah. had hundreds and hundreds of employees that worked under me at the big corporation, but I was an agnostic. And um, I'll never forget, uh, actually, the day before my wife's heart stopped beating, which is a whole nother story. We could take a whole episode there. But um, <laughs> the day before her heart stopped beating, we were on the golf course and she went out with me that night and uh, got in from work. And I said, hey, let's go get in nine holes. And she didn't play. So she took a book, went and got in the golf cart with me. And I hit my first ever hole in one. Uh, I was on uh, 
hole number 16 at the country club we was a member of. And as soon as I hit it, I knew I'd stroked it. I mean, I was like, man, I, I hit that ball well. You feel it. <laughs> felt it. And uh, it hit right on the green, checked up a little bit, released, and rolled right in the cup. And uh, Jill being Jill, for those of you all that know my wife, uh, she's always trying to save somebody. I mean, she'll save the stranger walking down the street. She was always trying to you know, get me to involved in church. But I remember coming back to the cart, pitched her the golf ball, and I said, look at that. Life's not too bad. I hit that hole in one, didn't need God on that either. So I don't need him in life. I don't need him in sports. I'm doing just good on my own. Wow. And the next morning is when uh, I rushed her to the hospital when her heart stopped beating. And uh, that's the first time my money couldn't buy my solution. Right. You know, when you said that, I can't help but believe that people are listening and have a similar experience. Because when I hear you say that you were raised in a works-based religion where it means you have to earn God's love, earn God's relationship. There's a yeah. list of do's and don'ts to make God want to be in relationship with you. It makes total sense for when you were struggling to go, well, I don't want to have anything to do with that God, yeah. right? Because I can't earn I can't be good enough for yeah. him to love me. At my best, I couldn't. Right, yeah. right. And that's actually the exact opposite yeah. of why Jesus came was because it's actually, you know, it's a hospital for the sick, right? Like sure. It's like we, God knows that we aren't perfect, that he is perfect. And so he sent his son uh, to die for us so that we could have relationship. I always say Christianity isn't a do or don't religion. It's a done religion. He already created that pathway uh, for you. You know, not, not to interrupt you, Adam, but I, I, I told, um, I remember I used to tell Jill all the time when she would try to talk to me about God, I would be like, hey, if I'm going to hell, I'm going to have fun getting there. I'm going to split it wide open. I'm going to slide in on two wheels. <laughs> right. And that that's the way I live life. Just the way your thought process worked. And I'm, I'm sure people can relate of those moments when we were away from God. I used to tell people, oh, God knows my heart. Like my wife would say, Adam, you know, you're you know, you're, you believe in God, but why are you right. dealing drugs? Why are you using, why are you doing this stuff? I said, oh, God knows my heart. Like, he knows I really want to be good. I just can't. Right. right. You know, and I think we've all kind of found ourselves in that moment where we're like, we know what's right, but we don't know how to do that, which I think kind of goes into the next question. Yeah. Uh, Hunter, that we like to. Yeah. I was going to say, um, you've told two stories here and being your son, I think I know the answer to this one in the first story, whenever you and I had the conversation about taking the trash out, following that, what was your moment of clarity? Think of the prodigal son, uh, eating, out of the pig trough at that point and what led you to getting sober what was the next step you took yeah you know for me um the first time i got sober was when i first got saved um so it was it was interesting my my journey to salvation was truly a journey um so give you the the truncated version of what happened so jill's heart stopped beating on her 36th birthday um so she got up basically on her 36th birthday she said hey honey let's go for a walk I said, honey, we just closed a big deal last night. I got a meeting I got to go to today. I don't have time for this. And I totally forgot it was her birthday. I also and, just uh, did a hole in one. So I'm really yeah, feeling just it. did a yeah. hole in one last night. Yeah. So, every, you know, life was good. We just closed another deal. I mean, it was all work, work, work. And um, so she said, um, honey, it's my birthday. The least you can do is go on a walk. And I thought, oh, man, I forgot her birthday. I haven't bought her anything yet. So maybe Goodness. I'll be late to this you meeting. You had no present. No present. Didn't even know it was her birthday. Totally. Wow. I was so, so that's a good self, picture of like where. That's how self-centered yeah. it was. It was all I was going to say, she got a present that day. And just to add to the clarity of how work was, it was just your assistant bought it for her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So my assistant kept track of all the yeah. birthdays. She had back. Yeah. She had my back. That's yeah. right. I paid her well. She took yeah. care of me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I had no idea. So long story short, we ended up 
going to um, the hot, or uh, going on the walk. Uh, before we even got to the walk, though, is when she started grabbing her left arm, and she sat down in our uh, our uh, bathroom. And I could see all the color was going out of her face. I mean, she literally was turning a gray. I mean, I can almost see her to, to this day. I mean, it was a gray color. It wasn't a pale. I mean, she looked gray. And uh, she started grabbing her left arm. She started squeezing her arm. And she was like, man, I, I just, I don't feel good. So why don't you just go on to work? I'll be okay. And I could see the signs of, of heart issues. And I was like, no, let's go. So anyway, I rushed her to the hospital. By the time we got to the, the hospital, I had called 911. They knew we were coming. They said, hey, come on, you're going to beat us here. We only live like three miles from this emergency room. So I pulled up under the ambulance uh, entry, then um, tried to get in that door. That door was locked. I ran down to the other door. As I was entering that door, the emergency workers had come out the ambulance door and got my wife out of the truck. And then as she was entering uh, the emergency room, she literally just crossed the threshold and she collapsed. Uh, Her heart stopped beating. And I was at the counter where we were supposed to be signing in. And uh, I heard code blue ring out through the emergency room. And having been in the healthcare world, I knew what code blue meant. I knew somebody's heart just stopped beating. And uh, you got to remember, this was uh, this was Mitch 1.0, as my kids call it. So Mitch 1.0 was pre-Christ. <laughs> Mitch 2.0 is, is after right. I accepted Christ. So this is the next day after hitting the hole in one. Uh, next day. Yeah. Next day after hitting the hole in one. As a matter of fact, she's still in one, cold blue. Cold blue. Within, uh, within 12 hours. Wow. Um, so chaos rang out. People running. And, you know, Mitch 1.0, God bless him. I mean, he... He asked the lady at the front counter. She was just trying to do her job. She's like, sir, can I get your insurance? Can I get this? Can I get your name? And I went off on her. I was like, there's a code blue going on right. back there. That could be my wife. I ain't worried about insurance right now. Yeah. So, uh, Which it, is understandable. Any human would. Uh, yeah. Right? yeah. So she, I said, I got to know if that's my wife that just coded. Uh, so she went back and went to check. And sure enough, she came back out and had a very somber look on her face. And I knew at that time that that was my wife. And uh, she said, yes, sir, it was it was your wife. And uh, they're working with her. And I said, is she alive? And they said, uh, they're working with her. That's all I could get. They're working with her. So I stood there for the better part of 30 to 45 minutes and had no idea if my wife was alive or dead. And again, that was the first time in my life that I couldn't write a check and make my problems go away. So I started reaching out in that time of despair. I started reaching out to all of my friends who were Christians to say, hey, I would typically never ask anybody to pray, but I need prayer. So long story short, I won't, I won't go through all the details in that. She ended up um, being taken downtown to the Jewish uh, Heart Institute. She was discharged in seven right. yeah, in, in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. In Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, she was discharged seven days later. No diagnosis. Uh, nobody could figure out what went on. Um, Jill told me after this that uh, she started that year off with a 21-day fast, and uh, I asked her what the topic of her fast was, and she said that God would get your attention no matter what it took because I knew that you were on the fast track toward uh, drinking yourself to death, and our marriage was on the fast track toward divorce. So uh, she started the year off with a 21-day fast that God would get my attention. God didn't get your attention with the golf shot, <laughs> but he got your attention with the cold blue. That was the first try, the golf yeah. shot. Yeah. You didn't know she was praying. Yeah. She didn't know she was praying. She probably wouldn't pray for cold blue. Well, yeah. I, I was going to say, she had to throw in that whatever it took. Right. And I'm a pretty hard-headed guy, so right. it took a lot to I get my relate. attention. I can yeah. relate. <laughs> yeah, back, and back to that big red beard, and that yeah. explains why. Yeah. So that, that, that was kind of my first step. Um, so in the midst of that, interestingly, enough. Um, I'd always had this gentleman who in my life was kind of a mentor to me. Uh, he was a man of faith, uh, played basketball at L. He was kind of a man's man, kind of a jock. 
he was a construction guy. You know, again, that man's man. Back then, when I thought of Christians, I thought of sissies. Uh, Jesus wasn't his boyfriend. Right. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you felt like this was a guy that you could relate to, you yes. felt safe with. Because I was one of the things I was thinking in my head was if you were saying the things you were saying that you didn't need God, you know, what in that moment, what do you think it was in that moment that said, I need a person that knows God? Because yeah. you were a person the day before who said, man, I don't need God. But then what made you, was it because of you just, there, there was, was no, it was no that plan. It was that pit in that moment, you know, you need God and yeah. God's your only answer. And in that moment when I'm sitting there going like, doctor, fix it. I don't care what it costs, fix it. Right. And they don't have a fix. They don't even have a diagnosis. Uh, where do you turn? Right. And in that moment, the only place I knew to turn was possibly back to the faith of my childhood that I heard a little bit about. Right. So that's when I reached out to this gentleman. Um, and uh, he came to the hospital and he said, you care if I come pray? And I said, Tim, knock yourself out. I said, right. nothing else is working. Uh, we were on like day three, I think, at this point in time in the ICU. And uh, so Tim come and prayed. Uh, Jill was being kept alive by machines. She had hoses. She had wires. She had all this stuff on her, keeping her alive, basically. Uh, at one point, she was on the heart transplant list. Um, I think the term is injection fraction. There's a way of measuring how hard your uh, heart pumps. And the strength of her heart pumping was so low that they had her on the, the heart transplant list yeah. because she was at a good age. Wow. Yeah. She was fairly healthy. Yeah. Uh, so they she thought she the was criteria, perfect. Yeah. She fit the criteria perfect uh, mm. for a successful heart transplant. So anyway, Tim comes to the ICU. He prays. Don't have a clue what he prayed. I just know he prayed. Uh, he got ready to walk out. Uh, I'm still sitting at Jill's bedside. Uh, and you know, Tim's a probably 6'4", six, 6'5", six, guy. He's a basketball player. He played at U of O. Okay. And he stopped at the door. He was the ultimate gentleman. He stopped at the door, and he turned around. And he looked at me very aggressively. I mean, I could tell he looked at me like this look in his face. that kind of caught me off guard, and he pointed at me. And he said, um, you need to be ready. And I'm like, ready for what? Wait, like, Ready for my wife to die? Is like what, what, turn and burn what, moment? What yeah, like what am I getting ready? What am I getting ready for? Is this the? This is the? This is it? The shoe falls yeah. off. I'm not good enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm just sitting there looking at him, and I didn't say a word. I just looked at him with this puzzled look on my face, uh, and he says, um, "God's healing your wife." As mm. sure as I'm standing here. Wow. Yeah. And I used to think um, if I was ever going to be a Christian, I could be one like Tim. Uh, he's a man's man, construction guy, athlete, right. you know, the, the kind of Christian, if I was going to be one that I'd want to be. And I remember thinking to myself, that's the craziest Christian I've ever met in my life. I, I don't want to be like him. Uh, Never mind. He's right. Yeah. I think the dude's lost it. <laughs> yeah. You marked his name off the list right when that happened. Exactly. Never mind. So I remember. Yeah. And, and when he said that, he said, God's healing your wife as sure as I'm standing here right now. I, and I looked down at the floor and that's when I, that thought was running through my mind. Like, he's crazy. And I look back up, and he's gone. He's turned around and walked off. I mean, it was as confident. It was like God sent him to tell wow. me, I'm going to show you who I what am. What faith. What faith. Yeah. yeah. So sure enough, seven days later, uh, we were released from the hospital with no real diagnosis. Uh, I remember asking the doctors, what's going on? And them saying, we don't know. And I'm like, that's why I'm here. Like, this is the Jewish Heart Institute. This right. is the hospital that created the Jarvis You're Seven Heart. <laughs> You're supposed to know. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I got called back. Uh, they ran some dye through her heart or something. And one of the doctors called me back and said, I want you to look at something. So he showed me this computer screen and he was like, tell me what you see. 
And I was like, I'm paying you a lot of money if you tell me what you see. Like, I don't know what I'm like looking Spanish at. Spanish and I speak English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, he said, no, just, he said, just in layman's terms, what do you see? And he said, just talk to me. And I said, well, I see what I think's a heart beating on that monitor, but I'm shocked that you guys spend all this money and we pay all this money for this hospital and it's not even in color. It's black and white. <laughs> and uh, he said, but when the heart beats and he was pointing out the blood and the valves and all that stuff. And he was like, that heart wasn't doing that just a few days ago. That's a perfectly healthy heart and we've done nothing to fix it. Mm. Wow. So, so this is after this his is prayer. After that, Tim had said this that. This was yeah. day seven, day six, six-ish or seven, because we were released on day seven. And Tim came, Tim came day on three. day three. So between day three and that six to seven days is when God went to work. Yeah. And all the doctors were sitting back, marveled in astonishment. And uh, Jill being Jill, she took every opportunity to share God. So she had nurses coming to talk to her. Hey, are you the girl? Are you the lady who's 36 year old whose heart stopped and now you're fine? And like everybody was talking to her and she was sharing God's love yeah, and sharing her yeah. testimony and had people. She literally had nurses crying in her hospital room while I'm sitting there going, just get out, just leave. I just want to be alone with my wife. And she was sharing. She was sharing the gospel, wow. sharing her faith every step, step along the way. So. That wasn't enough to bring me to Christ. Uh, <laughs> so all of this kind of took place right around 2010 when the earthquakes hit Haiti. And I don't know if you remember that, but that was a devastating time for that country. And um, I remember going to, I attended church with Jill. Sometimes I'd go along. I had been married for 30 years. So if you want to be married for 30 years, sometimes you just do what your wife says, whether you right. believe it or not. So sometimes I would just go to church just to, to go attend, to cut down on some of the arguing. But we went on a, a Sunday, but around that time frame, and again, I'm not the best with times of linking all this together, but it's all the same story. But in that church sermon, I remember the preacher talking about getting outside of yourself and not being so self-centered. And he talked about his family serving at a um, food it bank. The, it was the rescue mission. In the rescue mission. Yeah. yeah. And it had the name mission in it. Yeah. So he was talking about his family serving at this mission on Thanksgiving and, and serving Thanksgiving meals. So I remember coming back to Jill and using that word mission. I was like, you know, man, I, I know I'm self-centered. I know I'm all about me. Um, I'd like to do something like that, like the pastor said today with the mission. Mission's I'd, I'd like, and I yeah. use the word mission. So I opened the door. <laughs> She's like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So I meant I wanted to go to a food uh, a food right. bank or a shelter like right down the road, 30 minutes from the house, and go serve for three hours and have a feel-good story. But instead, uh, Jill's brother just so happened to be the uh, missions coordinator for the uh, International Illinois Baptist, Baptist Illinois State Association. Baptist yeah. something. So he was the missions coordinator, and they were putting a team together to go to Haiti for uh, earthquake relief. And he sent this mass email out. Jill read it. Jill says, Mitch said he wanted to go on a mission. Mitch meant go to a food kitchen. <laughs> so you're signed up to go. So she signs <laughs> yeah. me up to go to this mission. Yeah. So my my executive assistant who kept my life straight, she told me where to go, what to do, when to be there, all that good stuff. So there was one day and she was like, hey, you've got a doctor's appointment at this location at this time. So I remember going to that doctor's appointment thinking to myself, I'm not sick. I don't know why I'm going to this doctor's appointment. Yeah, maybe it's because I was a, I was a fairly high ranking executive with that company at the time. And I remember thinking maybe it's like key man life insurance or something. I, I didn't know. I had no idea what I was going so anyway, I pull up, I pull up to this location and I look and it's the University of Louisville Travel Clinic. And I look at the name on the door and I look at the address and I call my assistant and I'm like, I think you gave me the wrong address. 
And she's like, no, that's, that's where you're supposed to be. You've got to go in and get some shots. And, and I was like, shots. How am I get? what am I here for? I, mean, I don't even know what I'm here for. Am I a baby? Yeah. And, yeah. and she immediately goes, you need to call your wife and hung right. the phone up. Yeah. And I'm like, that's between y'all. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know what that means. So I ended up calling Jill. And then I found out that I had been signed up to go to Haiti on a missions trip unbeknownst to me. So, so when they hit play on the DVD to not eat the fruit or drink the water, that's when it really hit you that you weren't going to the food bank. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was going somewhere where I could die. So I, I had to take malaria shots and all this stuff. So anyway, you got to remember all the stuff that was going on in my life at that point in time. I knew, I knew something wasn't right. And then no. uh, I ended up going to Haiti and spending two weeks following those earthquakes where I witnessed, uh, the front end loaders with hundreds, dozens, if not hundreds of bodies in front end loaders. And I wow. witnessed the mass graves and I witnessed them just dumping bodies in and pushing the dirt over. But uh, in the midst of all of that, I also witnessed a country that had nothing, that literally had nothing. Um, no running water, no sewer. I mean, by our standards, you just, you just can't imagine. At this point in time, they were the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. They may still be, for all I know, but at right. that time they were. Uh, they were considered a fourth world country. Did, I'd always heard a third world. Wow. I didn't know fourth world existed, uh, but they were fourth world. But in the midst of all of that devastation and loss and tragedy, I saw a faith in that people that I couldn't relate to. They had a peace. They had a contentment. They would sit in the midst of all the rubble and all the death and just sing out songs of praise to God. And I remember one time going for a walk around that neighborhood and I heard this melody of a song. I recognized the melody and I kind of walked toward the melody and I come around the corner and here was this little old Haitian lady sitting on a five gallon bucket just singing. And she was singing in Creole, uh, which is their native tongue. And she saw me walk around the corner and she pointed at me and she said, English? And I shook my head, yes, and she switched over to sing in English, and she was singing, How Great Is Our God. Wow. So me witnessing death and devastation like I'd never seen in my life, I was in a job making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, country club memberships, unlimited expense accounts, living a life like I never dreamed possible, but I was the most miserable person I knew. And I was sitting there listening to this little probably 70 to 80 year old Haitian woman sitting on a five gallon bucket in the midst of devastation, singing how great her God was. Wow. And uh, she had nothing. Most people will look at her and say, you came there because she needs what you had. No. Right. They need what we have. But in reality was she had. She ministered what, to me way you more needed. than I ministered to her. And that genuine faith, yes. which is the whole point of our podcast is we want people to understand and realize their need for God. Right. And it's at that moment yeah. I'm hearing and you're hearing this too. And I was like, that's that moment where you realize like, I want that kind of faith. I want, I want what she has yeah. in her heart. And I'm sure there's a lot of people here listening now that probably feel um, the same way. So um, we're gonna be wrapping this up here in a few minutes, but um, I, I think the last thing here, uh, Mitch, is you know about Recovery Refuge. You know, it's a, it's a Christ-centered recovery program uh, for people who are struggling with their addictions, people who have found themselves in those dark moments like you have, and they need a place to go and, and find God and find faith and find sobriety and just, if you could, in so many words, just with your story is so incredible. It's amazing. I know it's going to touch a lot of people. 
why in your in your own words why is there such a great need for a place like recovery refuge you know um addiction is no respecter of persons um i mean i was a i was a high functioning executive and i was an addict uh, i wasn't the homeless person living under the bridge right um so addiction hits every level um i just shared with you a couple of weeks ago a friend of mine reached out right um, yeah Again, another high-functioning executive. He and I have worked together now for 20 years. He has had some big-time positions, made six figures plus, plus, plus. And he reached out to me in tears the other day, and he's like, I've lost my wife. I've lost my kids. I'm in the process of losing my house. I can't keep a job. And it's all because I fell off the wagon after seven years of sobriety, and I thought at the Kentucky Derby I could handle one mint julep. Mm. And one mint julep went from seven years of sobriety to losing it all. And um, I've been so close to that losing it all. And I know that story uh, because as I shared, I I also think that part of a sobriety walk for most people is relapse. Uh, Very, very few people that I know gets clean and sober one time and that's it. Right. Uh, And for me, uh, when I become saved, God radically delivered me from alcohol. Um, I went almost six years and didn't touch it, Uh, didn't have a drink, had no desire for it. And then some of those bad habits start coming back in. It's like, oh, you know, I'm just at a football game. I'm at a tailgate. I can have a beer. Uh, And then the next thing you know, you open that window and that addiction comes back uh, harder and stronger than ever before. So I I just I I just have a heart for people like that. I have a heart for helping others. Um, I've been fortunate in my career to to where God has blessed me to, to be able to bless others. And I truly try to live that out in my life. And I don't know of a a more pressing problem in our society today that you can put your hands on. Now, the, the, the moral situations in our society today are tremendous. Right. I don't know of a situation in our communities and in our societies today that you can more tangibly put a finger on and go, that's a massive problem. And if I could get this recovery refuge or be a cog in the wheel to get recovery refuge up and going, that'll impact lives. Right. And I think that that is probably why I'm so passionate about recovery yeah. refuge. Yeah. And I mean, we actually have the statistics, you know, of people that are dying just in our, in our own County, every 48 hours, someone right. passes away from overdose. And then just here close in Nashville, 14 overdose deaths a week. A week. So that's what you, but tangible, we're talking about, there's the, the thing, those 14 people have a name. Yes. Like they have a family. And so I appreciate you. And that's the drugs. Yeah. And the part that. that that's, that just, yeah, that's just one drug. The part that I get like a, a righteous, holy anger on is the alcohol. Because it's almost like our society has grown to accept alcoholism. It's like, yeah. it's at every big social event. And that's one of the things that I learned in Florida is I learned how to be a sophisticated drunk. I right. mean, I was a high class drunk. You know, if I you have those things that you talked about, like the money, there's like a, I guess there's kind of like a checkbox. Like, yeah. if, well, if you still have your job, if you still still can pay your bills, right. you still have money. You're just unwinding. You're just decompressing. Right. It becomes a permissible sin. And those can be the most destructive ones is the ones that have become accepted even by the church, by your community is when they become okay to partake in. Yeah. 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 So that, that's, that's right. So the drugs are huge and the, the, the drugs are the ones that have the death. And, and I, I don't have statistics to back this up. But man, I'm, I'm telling you the heart that I have for the alcoholic. Uh, yeah. 
because again, it is. It seems to be more of the accepted uh, addiction, right. but man, it's vicious. It will absolutely destroy families and destroy lives. Just as bad, in my opinion, if not worse than than the opioid epidemic. Yeah, yeah. Well, anybody that's listening, if you are in that place and you're struggling. Uh, please reach out to us, recoveryrefuge.care at gmail.com or recoveryrefuge.care. That's our our website. Yeah. And one last challenge, if you will, being the uh, one of the characters in my dad's story here, there was a night that the the house we lived in was just, honestly, it was absurd. Hindsight, the space that we had, we one time did like a square footage ratio and every kid had a thousand square feet or every member of the family had a thousand square feet they could roam in. But one of the rooms that you built- it's Actually 1,200 square 1200, feet per okay, person. Yeah, yeah, we, could yeah. get, we could get lost in the house and we could have every one of us in a different corner of the house and not even know we were there. And when we moved in, there was an unfinished basement when we first moved in and you built out a couple of different things, but one of them was a wine cellar. And if you're listening to this today, one of the most impactful memories I have was we came home from school one day, you called us downstairs to the wine cellar and to be honest, he hit the intercom button and said, everyone come to the wine cellar. And to be frank with the history we had, I was expecting kind of a drunken spiel about how someone didn't shut the door or something like that. And we come downstairs and you and mommy, to be frank, to call her by her loving name, mommy yeah. were standing there and uh, you told us each to grab a bottle and to pour it out. And in that wine cellar, thousands, thousands of dollars worth of alcohol, liquor, anything. And he told everyone grabbed a bottle. There's pictures floating around our iCloud account somewhere of TJ. He was already dressed for bed. And at the time he was maybe five or six years old. He had his pajamas on and he's pouring out a bottle of tequila down the drain. Wow. And to underplay the pivotal moment that was in our family tree would be unfair to anyone. So if you are struggling with that in your life, Take this moment right now and make yeah. that decision to shift your family tree. That's not good. To, not to interrupt you, but I don't know if you remember what followed that, because that's when I'd give my life to Christ. So not only did I tell yeah. the kids, I was like, we're pouring it out. I'm done. Yeah, this is Mitch 2.0. <laughs> I right. also told Jill, I said, give me the largest denomination that you can find. And she went and found the largest we could find in the house is a $50 bill. And we still have that to this day. I put the $50 bill in a coffee mug and I lit it on fire and I said, mm-hmm. it'll never be my God again. Yeah. Wow. And if you, <laughs> I said, God, if you give me the opportunity to be a successful business guy again at a later stage in life, I'll use it to glorify you. Yeah. Amen. So what you're doing now and just say, uh, Mitch is a board member at recovery refuge. So yeah. a huge supporter and uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without you. So I can testify and say, uh, you're living that out yeah. today. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, Mitch, daddy, thank you for your time. <laughs> uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Recovery Refuge podcast. We always appreciate it when you share this podcast on your social media platforms to help get the word out. You never know whose life will be saved or impacted in the world of recovery because you chose to share. To learn more about Recovery Refuge or to support us, go to www.recoveryrefuge.care. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, today is a great day to have a great day.